0: Hey MFAers, head over to MFAPayday.com to get your very own customizable free Pitch Your Pants Off tracker. That's at MFAPayday.com. And stay tuned for all the details of a fun Pitch Your Pants Off challenge starting November 1st. How do you build or reignite your writing career with intention?
1: What are the tools and tricks to keep your creativity alive after you've turned in that last assignment? Join us as we explore how to make your MFA pay on our podcast, MFA MFA Payday.
0: Payday. Welcome to MFA Payday, where we talk with people about all the ways they make their MFA pay.
1: We're your hosts, Dreama Drudge and Barry Drudge. Today, our guest is Andrew Nyberg. Andrew Nyberg is the author of the speculative horror novel, Gala Talk, Cactus Moon Press 2023, the collection of poems The Goats Have Taken Over the Barracks, Finishing Line Press 2021, and the chapbook Easy to Lose, Finishing Line Press 2007. His short fiction has appeared in Prose Online, Psychopomp Review, bookend review, and many, many others. He received an MFA in poetry from Spalding University and an MA in creative writing from University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Currently, he teaches for the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and is serving as a senior editor for Symposium Magazine. Welcome to MFA Payday, Andrew.
2: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about your MFA journey?
2: Oh, so... You know, it was kind of strange. I didn't know where I was going to be going after I was wrapping up my MA. In fact, actually, I hadn't really expected to do an MA to begin with. I'm not going to lie. Part of the reason I ended up in the MA program was at UT Knoxville was I had done my undergraduate there and I kind of found myself, due to external circumstances, in a bit of a holding pattern on what I was going to be doing next. And honestly, it kind of came as a spur of the moment decision to apply. I actually missed the deadline too. I was like a month out afterwards. But I did know a couple folk there really well. And so they kind of nudged me into it. But when I left UT Knoxville, I actually immediately landed my job here at UT Chattanooga. It was actually this really weird process where kind of similar, I really was in a sort of a strange place. And I was like, okay, I'm working at a coffee shop. And I guess I'll do that until I figure out if I'm going to go to a program or if, and I was even thinking about moving out of state at the time. And one day I was getting off work. It was five o'clock. I sat down at 502 on my laptop and I actually literally remember the times of it and I checked my email and I'd gotten an email say from Mary Jo Reif who was at the time the UT Knoxville composition program had and it was saying that she had just heard that UT Chattanooga had an unexpectedly large freshman class and was looking to urgently hire full-time lecturers and I was like you know I'm thinking about a low-res program, and so I've got a couple of years to kill. So I sent in a response saying, hey, I'm interested in this, and I attached a resume and my CV at the time, which was pathetic, (laughs) on the teaching philosophy, which I'd actually composed as a class assignment for one of my 500-level classes. And actually, within 15 minutes, I loosely had the job, and I was like well, damn, I was kind of stunned in a way because it was just like this radical left turn in life. And at the same time, I was actively applying to MFA programs. And actually a couple of my first choices, I'd been applying at the time in, in fiction, and I actually got pretty roundly rejected. I had five fiction programs I submitted to, and all of them rejected me. And I submitted to exactly one MFA in poetry. And Within 24 hours of my application going in, I had gotten a call from, if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure it was Molly Peacock. Saying that they really loved my essay, they really wanted to have me, and I mean, honestly, immediately felt like this was exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. It was the odd duck out of my applications. I, I honestly wasn't terribly fond of my poetry at the time. Uh,
0: oh.
1: Like I really, you know, <laughs> I sacrilege.
0: Mean, wait, wait, no.
1: <laughs> let me let me put it Whoa. this way. Before you go on, that when she was in the program, before I was traveling with her, these are things that I would hear on the phone. No, oh, yeah, yeah. that she she had to leave the room because she couldn't breathe because this poem was just absolutely grabbing her and crushing her oh, yeah so. I, I had
2: i had horrible imposter
1: syndrome and oh. i had
2: been really lucky to work with some amazing people the late arthur, arthur smith he's still one of my absolute mentors even you know I, I come back to his book year after year um i worked with jack gilbert and folk like that and then on maryland callett of course he's gone on to be the you know poet laureate of tennessee for a, a, a stretch such fantastic people i always had a a hard time having faith in my poetry. But then there was another side of it too, which is, and this comes back to ever since I was a kid, I always enjoyed writing fiction more. And so I was actually really wanting to be a novelist. The only problem was I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) I had, I think, a pretty wild imagination. I'd come up with strange stuff. But, um, you know, no matter how much I read at the time, I really didn't understand structure. And I think, uh, retrospectively, I think that's actually why I really struggled to gain any traction around, you know, from basically like, you know, leaving undergraduate all the way, I mean, really until a few years ago. You know, I'd I'd written a couple of novels that frankly were just, you know, they were awful. Um, The short fiction I was working on, I think, had some really great ideas behind it. And a couple of pieces actually, I think, stood out, but um, as a whole, I really um, I, I didn't have any discipline as uh, a creator of of narrative craft. So it was all invention, not really thinking about readership or what makes a piece actually accessible to somebody. It was play for play sake, which is great. You know, I learned a lot I think writing it but um, yeah so you know once I got into Spalding though. Um, I don't know. It's, a, you know, I, I, I felt like I, you know, really with that first phone call, I felt like I really, really clicked with the program. It helped, of course, that right after I got in, I discovered that a long-term friend of mine, actually almost, you know, an adult lifelong friend of mine, Matt Ermey, had also been accepted into the program. And Um, uh, we hadn't spoken for years, actually, at that point, but we ended up rebuilding our friendship from there. It was a really great entrance into the program. There was, at the end of that, first residency I did in Louisville, they had the closing meeting and they were talking about upcoming changes to the program. And apparently they'd had a conversation among the faculty about what they could do to make the next residency better. And Richard Cecil at the time was a terrible smartass. And I remember Kathleen saying, his only response was well what if we just hold it in Paris and Kathleen said when well, we just looked at each other and we were like well why don't we and so that was when they announced the Paris residency and yeah I mean just like that I was like oh yeah I'm doing it uh, <laughs> and uh, I- I've always been interested in travel to begin with it took me a while to get up the courage to actually travel a lot but I'd moved around the states quite a bit so I felt that a lot of instability growing up. And so for a while there, I was actually kind of like, okay, let's keep my feet on the ground and stay in one place. And it took me a little bit to work myself up to really taking a big trip. But I've been to Croatia before the residency. And then yeah, heading to Paris after that, it was, you know, I knew that was absolutely where I was supposed to be. I could also see there was a really marked change in the poetry I was writing. I had such for, you know fortune to work with people like Greg Pape, who was amazing. And then of course, Kathleen Driscoll, she was my mentor for the entire, I guess, sophomore year or whatever you want to call it right you know second year of the residency and she also if i remember i think we also worked together and on my um final residency uh, workshop leader. I got to work with her directly a lot. and She was fantastic. And then Molly Peacock was amazing in my third year. And uh, Deborah Kang Dean, of course. I'm in uh, the, mm-hmm. the caliber of people and conversation I was working with in the, just in the faculty alone was incredible. The folk on the trips with us were fabulous. Really, the people from the Paris program are some of the main people who show up in my Facebook feed because I had respond to their posts.
0: So if we could backtrack for just a minute, you were saying that you noticed a difference in your poetry that it changed with the Paris trip? So
2: I've always been an observational poet. I have a lot of narrative elements too, but the place I, I do find the most inspiration is comes from one of two things, going somewhere and looking at something or reading about something and so if if you follow my social media feeds all i do is post articles um you know aside from the occasional self-promotion it's just like hey (laughs) look at this cool thing on quantum computers or look they're talking about time travel i'm a science junkie and a medical junkie so a lot of my pieces kind of work with the hybrid of both but um one thing that really interested me, and this is something that interests me about travel in general, is that walking through Paris, one thing I really loved about how that residency was done was how we had an emphasis on depth of place. Every place we went had historical significance. The vast majority of the lecturers brought us to a location or a series of locations and then talked about the things and people connected with those places. It had me really thinking about the way, first off, I could, as we were learning about these Things we could kind of picture the people coming through these places and the way they kind of still live and inhabit that space. So it's been something I've been thinking about for a really long time, actually. Out of two different contexts, one my first trip to Croatia. One thing that's really amazing there is you know you'll be walking down a residential street and then suddenly you run into a thousand-year-old church, uh, <laughs> or you know you'll you know you're staying at an Airbnb, basically in a rented apartment, and three doors down there's a pile of rubble from a former shelling twenty years ago that they've left there as a reminder of what's happened. Um, So yeah, I mean, you have this real, you know, you have these people who are living in this really historically rich place. When I went to Split, just down the coast from Zadar, we visited uh, Diocletian's palace, and uh, people still live in the palace. You know, this 2,000-year-old structure, people have clotheslines hanging out the windows (laughs) from one building to the next. And I mean, you know, the way people live among history in Europe and beyond I hate you know I, I don't mean to criticize the states with this because we have a very you know we're a young nation we have a very different identity but um it's hard to find that sort of breadth of culture that actually still stands you know we, we can yeah. you know we can learn about Native American cultures and they're fascinating and some actually some of the coolest storytelling I know comes out of uh, folk, Native American folklore but so little survives of the actual physical presence and that coupled with the a, a class i got to take with elizabeth gilbert on writing fiction about place and she wasn't Whoa.
0: famous. Oh, okay. Jealous. she wasn't
2: famous at the time she had written pilgrims and she just uh, published stern man and was in the process of writing eat pray love we actually heard a little bit about the things she was writing about at the time i don't think anybody quite expected her to kind of, kind of blow up calm like down <laughs> It was a fabulous class, but until then, I'd really never considered myself a writer of place, but that's actually when I started to kind of realize my affinity towards it, and then That was something I didn't really know what to do with that at the time, though, until the Paris residency, when I was doing a combination of writing poetry there, I was studying French poetry, having workshops about other people's poems there. I mean, every part of the creative process was taking place in a place that was steeped in the kind of history I'd been reacting to. I think that in a lot of ways, I think that is one of the biggest things. And then plus, also, honestly, it was the first abroad residency and With that kind of comes a certain excitement, Um, not just among the students, though, the faculty was thrilled to be there. And that makes a huge difference when you're working with people who are genuinely enthusiastic, especially more than usual. It creates a really fabulous experience. I kind of feel like all of the dice fell right for that trip.
0: So what are you working on right now?
2: Oh Lord, what am I not working on? I have a lot of irons in the fire, actually. I kind of let some things kind of spiral out of control. I've got some really promising leads at the moment. I've got a number of pieces out that are getting really serious consideration. So I've kind of got my fingers crossed, but at the same time, I'm also revising those pieces just in case they don't get taken. So actually just today, I was continuing sending out a collection of poems that I think is pretty finished. I may, if I, were, I was going through it the other day and there's maybe 15, percent of the poems I could maybe revisit and and adjust, but it wouldn't be major changes. It'd just be trying to refine something new out of them. But uh, I have been sending that out to a handful of presses. And so sort of that last level of polish and trying to push it out the door has been a big project. It is actually a really important one to me because it's the only thing I've ever written that really directly involves my children. They don't really play into my writing very much, aside from influencing things like parent-child relationships in fiction. But uh, this is the sole Collection of poems. It's actually about my almost guilt at bringing them into a world with such an uncertain future. It's really scary to think about what are they going to be facing when I'm past the age where I can really do anything. But So I've got that going out. I've just finished a final round of revision on it, a little bit of, like I said, polish. I have a short story collection that I started in April of 2021. It's actually funny because until then, I hadn't written a piece of short fiction in over a decade. I hadn't written short fiction seriously since 2003, maybe 2004. I randomly was going through, one of my computers was failing. It was the one that my kids were using for their virtual school from 2020 to 2021. And it just kind of burned it out, not for any particular reason, but just because it was getting old. And so I was taking some files off and I came across a folder of some of my old really, really short flash pieces. I had this month as a graduate student. Where on my lunch break, I would sit down and I would write a story about whatever came to mind. And the only rule was that I had to finish the story in my lunch break, and I would never revisit it again. (laughs) And I came across a couple that I was actually really pretty fond of. There was uh, There's like two I still actually have in a folder somewhere. I'm, uh, one of them I actually revised uh, about two weeks ago to try to do something with. And then the other, I was like, you know, I really like this story. And I just sent it out to a handful of places that dealt with absurd fiction because it was a goofy story. It was a, about a, a sentient nuclear missile that he wants to blow up until he discovers the power of friendship. And I started sending, you know, and it, it actually got taken by the, by the first place I sent it to. And so I I was like, you know, maybe I should write some short fiction. And I literally just had this ridiculous rush of productivity. Last summer, I wrote down a 30, 40 short stories. And then since then, every couple of weeks, I write a new one. I've still got a couple I'm kicking around right now that I just haven't had time to put down. There was a really big push for short fiction, and I'm trying to shape one collection, but you know the, the longer I take on it actually the more multiple collections are emerging from it originally <laughs> it was this fairly loosely organized magical realist piece with some speculative elements but I actually since then I've kind of started a pretty substantial vein of science fiction short fiction horror short fiction and magical realism and um, I'm actually thinking that you know really if the, the initial collection doesn't get taken this year I'll probably have three different collections I'm marketing next year so that's. Been- been been a big ongoing project and i've had some pretty good luck placing those pieces i've gotten i think 10 pieces of fiction out the last year um you know some of them in pretty nice pretty decent paying markets too which uh, i'm not gonna (laughs) i won't argue with actually one of the most pleasant surprises was my most recent piece would be peace with utopia science fiction it's out now but it came out at the beginning of this month it's a piece called uh, what was that one called the robots inside us and it's about a um, a mother and uh, and daughter, um, they're in a town square, and the daughter wants to go see this window where that looks into another dimension, and nobody knows why it's opened up. But inside the window, there's this robot who's constantly repairing its surroundings. Um, but that's all they know. They can't tell what it is, what it's trying to do, what any of the machinery it's fixing does. In the meantime, though, the mother is actually wrestling with trying to decide whether or not to tell her daughter she has cancer. Um, oh. The piece plays back and forth between her relationship with her daughter and her thinking about um, this self-repairing machine. There's a kind of a lot of metaphorical elements that kind of come out of it, but the magazine was fabulous to work with, first off. They had great editors. I, I never mind editorial suggestions, but, you know, I, I take some and I, I miss some. And I really appreciated their editorial feedback. I thought they gave it a good read and saw something I was I might have been missing in the piece and helped me revise the ending in a really productive way. But then the really cool surprise was this. When they took the piece, they had a paying rate of one cent per word. I was like, OK, here's a few bucks. That'll cover some submission fees. I never complain. I mean, getting paid to write, just getting paid to have fun. Um, oh, yeah. But then uh, they contacted me about three weeks before the publication date, and they told me they were raising their rates to to four cents a word. So I was like, wow. That's fantastic. They didn't even have to do it. I mean, I'd signed a contract. Um, there was wow, absolutely nice. no motive aside from them being really cool editors. And um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, don't know, I actually uh, like I, I've actually been really happy to sort of promote their magazine as a result, because it's like, you know, that, 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 that speaks a lot about how they value what they're putting out. I had a piece on prose online um, as well. That was sort of uh, that's sort of, I guess, the most publicly visible piece of short fiction I've got now. But I have a few pieces, like I said, I've got editors who have contacted me with considerable interest on a couple of pieces and I got my fingers crossed on them, but I'm hoping I'll be able to make some really cool announcements there. Then, <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> I'm also Wait, there's working, more,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm also working on a novella right now, a science fiction, uh, a novella, sort of a, a psychological space drama, um, set in an orbital platform out just outside Earth. Um, and uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's, it's inspired by a lot of the things I read growing up. Ender's Game is a big influence, of course. Then I was a big fan of Neon Genesis Evangelion from the anime side of things, and You know, kind of adventure stuff like that plays a bit of a role. The more cerebral science fiction pieces. I'm a huge fan of, you know, Joseph Alderman, John Scalzi, all of them. So yeah, there's a novella I'm currently drafting. Um, It's probably about a third of the way into primary composition, about maybe half to two thirds of the way through planning. Um, I always kind of do both in tandem. I like to do some planning and have some idea of what's coming up, but I also want there to be room to explore and discover as I go. I'm also taking notes on my next novel. Um, I actually have, I think, a really, really good premise. It's the most ambitious piece I'm trying to create, and I really want to take my time and create something, for lack of a better word, proper. To some of my pieces, uh, like actually the novel I've got coming out, to some extent, it was one of those ideas that I was gestating for a long time, but I also kind of flew by the seat of my pants as I composed it. So I had some firm milestones in the narrative that had to be reached. So I had a structure in mind, um, but there is a lot of wiggle room in how I got there and a lot of developmental elements I had no clue about until I was revising. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and then finally, I do actually have one other novel I wrote right before, a little while before the pandemic that I kind of shelved, and it's actually kind of a small town horror novel a bit of an homage to growing up reading Stephen King and other and folk like that and that one is actually gotten some interest from a couple people um and I'm again, fingers crossed I'm not gonna get excited about something that's not happened yet but um I feel like there's some promising interest in that one as well and in the process I'm actually kind of coming back through that one for a uh, a more textual revision, like kind of looking at the line by line, how well the voice is holding up through the piece. Just kind of trying to tighten it up in case this doesn't work out, or in case it gets taken and I need to actually send in a polished version of it. Wow, um, and. You know, then beyond that, I have, uh, I, I do have a future poetry. <laughs> and <book>. then. <laughs> yeah. Wow.
1: <laughs>
2: um, yeah. Well, you know, like the thing about poetry for me is, you know, The Goats Have Taken Over the Barracks came out in 2021. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was started back in 2005 um you know not in this final form by any stretch um you know it, it went underwent radical transformation in the meantime you know including different titles different themes if you look at the first draft that is what i would sort of consider this book it's actually probably 95 percent different than its finalized version um but that's because i kept sloughing away poems and pulling new ones in and it's sort of the oh, ship yeah. of theseus by the end um but uh but no, I don't write poetry collections just like sitting down. All right, I'm going to put together a collection of poems. To me, it's like this process of coalescing a collection. Like the one I'm putting out now, um, I would say I started writing it. Actually, I started writing about 2008. The oldest poems were written before the ghosts have taken over the barracks was even a collection resembling its modern form. There were just poems that didn't fit that, but I liked enough to hold on to. And then at that point, I didn't even have kids.
1: <laughs> well, obviously, I wasn't
2: writing about them at that point um but you know when uh, in fact actually a couple of the poems came from the Paris residency um oh wow and then a couple came from the uh, Barcelona residency I think one from argent no, no, none from the Argentina one those are actually still in a folder I haven't decided what to do with um <laughs> but no um basically though it, it it did take nearly a decade to put that together and I actually sat down October of 2019 and that's when I put together the first real draft of this and then it became something I worked on over the pandemic like the version I'm sending out now took about a year and a half to compile edit and refine and then more revisions beyond that so like you know At the same time, about five years ago, I started writing a completely separate series of poems based in a very different voice and sensibility. And that's the thing that's slowly kind of now building with more recent writings towards what'll probably be like a collection in four or five years. So that one's a little bit down the road. But like I said, I have a strange composition process for poetry that's a little more gradual.
1: Well, you've got me intrigued on every aspect. I mean... Once a friend of mine's kind of got me back into science fiction, fantasy, horror, <laughs> and he said speculative, which I can see that being thrown in. So not only do I want to find out about it, but I recommend everyone who's listening to check out what you're doing, because hearing your voice, I'm assuming that it comes through in your writing as well most people's do. So let's listen and read.
0: <laughs> no, you're so prolific i mean obviously (laughs) and that is so encouraging because one of the reasons we're doing this is we've talked to way too many of our writing friends and we're asking them what are you working on are you putting things out there and they kind of go life is busy or whatever how do you find time to write how do you find time to submit what does your schedule look like yeah for that (laughs) that's kind
2: of complicated in uh, in a lot of ways It, it actually starts in a really simple way actually like um I sit down and open up my computer and I say, so what's something I can write down right now and then I'm like, okay, what comes next? To a certain extent, I actually will say that that is my writing process where it is like, I'll start with the blank page. And A lot of times I'll come to it with something vaguely in mind, some observation I made over the day or something like that. Or, you know, maybe I watched a movie lately and I, I'm kind of interested in it, or, you know, or maybe some image just stood out from something I watched or read. So maybe I'll have a, a notion in mind. Otherwise, honestly, sometimes I'll sit down and think, you know, what's the weirdest shit I can say right now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, whatever, you know, wh- whatever um, it, it, it comes from, honestly, it comes down to one really simple thing. Um, and has to do with my, my general perception of writing is, first off, I don't think writing is something you always do at the screen. Like, honestly, as long as you're consciously thinking and then trying to interpret the world around you, I think you're always writing. Like, this is just for an example, something that I do. And this is one of my weird little quirks. I don't necessarily think everyone should do this, but actually I run through iterations of conversations in my head. Sometimes out loud too, while I drive. Um, Oh, welcome to the club.
1: I do that too. Yeah, I
2: got to three (laughs) minute commute into work. And so I'll have things I anticipate. Sometimes it's what I think I'll say in a classroom. Other times I might think about how I'd explain an idea I'm thinking about. Other times I may just be thinking about a character in one of my pieces or a theme that I've been getting into, and I literally just run through iterations and combinations of phrasings. How would I actually say this so I get it right? And... I don't write any of that stuff down typically, unless I actually happen to be at a computer, which honestly in my car, I'm usually not. Um, (laughs) But I do this while I'm walking and stuff like that too. Basically, the more practice I have in putting those thoughts into language, the easier it is when I sit down to actually write. One thing I'm really aware of most of the time is engaging my mind with putting my thoughts into words. One thing I always stress to my students is that writing at the end of the day is a discipline. It's not something we do when we're inspired. The inspiration is a separate thing that should make our discipline practice better that if we aren't um, treating it like a discipline, we become rusty, we become dull. Um, the skills aren't there when we need them. You know, I mean, writing's a really weird thing when you come down to it. I don't know how, y'all, how much uh, y'all are interested in things like linguistics, but, um, you know, writing itself is this really bizarre and frankly unnatural process. This combination of converting sounds into letters, which then com- co- combine into words, the meaning of which is all arbitrary. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's all by... Uh, with the exception of onomatopoeia, um, which um, which is pretty much all by just collective agreement. So on top of that, you throw in things like the rules of grammar and stuff like that, sim, you know, cultural symbolisms and connotations. The whole damn thing is this really bizarre mental construct, which isn't that different from the in-depth training that one puts their body through for athleticism it's not that different from the way in which artists practice techniques over and over and over so that when they finally sit go go, go to the canvas they just do them straight out I play the drums. so you can't see it here but just to my left I have a drum set over there and uh first off I'm terrible um <laughs> but um but also because it really is just a hobby for me I took it up during the pandemic so that I can get some exercise and it was something I'd always wanted to do as a kid but I don't know if I'll ever even get to play with another human being, you know? But uh, at the same time though, um, one thing that's, that's really clear though is things that look like really simple motions, they take thousands of repetitions to get them right. Mm -hmm. We just kind of take writing for granted because it's something we're kind of taught to do when we are like five or six or four. And then, you know, sometimes we kind of half-ass it for a long time. And then maybe we have to try really hard for a couple of weeks to get this big project out. But then we go back to sort of casually doing it. And we get this assumption that the people who do it a lot have to be really good at it, to have this natural innate skill for it to come to them. But honestly, to some extent, I think that one thing that makes a huge difference is just the amount of time spent putting words to our thoughts. At the end of the day, if I had to say any one thing is the largest determinant, I mean, that's going to be it. When I'm washing the dishes, I think of my stories. When I'm driving, I'm thinking about themes. I'm very frequently in a state of writing. In fact, actually, you know, family is one of the few things that takes me out of that state. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just because I choose to focus on them, you know, (laughs) um, obviously. Um, (laughs) No, Um, beyond that, actually, I mean, at that point, it is just a question of deciding where your time's going to go. You know, at the end of the evening, do I want to watch a movie or do I want to open up my laptop and work at a store? Mm -hmm. And um, there is, there's not like a push and pull there. It's a literal, just conscious decision. Um, You know, sometimes I am too tired to write, and I'll sit down and I'll be like, you know what, I'm going to try to write, and I'll open up my laptop, and I won't get too much progress, and I'll be like, okay, you know what, I'm probably not doing my best right now. Let let let's turn our attention to something else, but. What matters is that impulse to choose that first is my entertainment. That's what I fill my extra, my voluntary time with. That's really where it all gets done. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, it's just like, you know, end of the evening after the kids go to bed. That's one time I do it. My lunch breaks is another time I do it. Sometimes <clears throat> I get to classes 15 minutes early. I'll sit outside with my laptop type for 15 minutes instead of scrolling on my phone or something like that. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's you know, and it, and it's amazing what you can, you know, you can get done fitting just a few minutes here and there, honestly. Um, And then, you know, if you can find a good two hours to work, you can get a ton done. Of course, at this point, I am taking it a little bit more seriously. Writing at this point is little less hobby feeling to me, and a lot more of a directly engaged profession. And what I mean by that is that I've had a, a decent amount of traction coming out of work. At this point, I'm up to some, I don't know, 40, 50 poems published, 10 pieces of short fiction, handful of reviews, two books, and a novel coming out. I've gotten enough kind of success that I can say, well, you know, let's see what happens if I really do push this and see where it goes. And so, you know, the last two years in particular, I'll definitely say I've committed a lot more time than i used to writing production it's starting to actually bring money into the household and stuff like that so that kind of reinforces that decision but even before then you know really it was uh, you know did i want to play video games that night or did i want to write a short story um and that that's that's what it comes down to it's it's just a question of will and discipline um yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. now and fill in, in the, conversely i guess what are you currently reading and how do you find time to do that
2: <laughs> so <laughs> I have a couple different reading things going on. Um, first off, actually, the ma- main way I find time for reading is real simple. Last 30 minutes of every night, my wife and I lie down, lie in bed and read. That's our bedtime ritual. It's not like we read every single night, but uh, it's something we built into our schedule. So right now, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of embarrassed because I'm forgetting the author's name, but I'm reading a science fiction book called The Three Body Problem. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, six and Lou. Yeah, there we go. That's it. Um, so and you know, I, I honestly wasn't 100% sure how to pronounce his name. I've only yeah. read his name. I've not heard it articulated. But yeah, so I'm reading The Three-Body Problem right now, which is absolutely fabulous. It has actually one of the most compelling openings to a novel I've read in a very long time. Oh, yes. Um, that opening scene of the woman on the rooftop with the flag um, is just a stunning image. And then the way the problem starts to escalate is also very brilliantly executed. But no, I'm reading that. That's kind of like my pleasure, Book right now, but um, I'm also reading The Vine Temple by Kathleen Driscoll. It's actually not out yet. I'm reading it for <laughs> review purposes. So that's been really exciting. Um, I like writing reviews, actually. It's the one time I get back in touch with my old academic self in a lot of ways. Nice. Um, but so I'm reading that kind of one poem at a time right now, and just that, that's kind of an ongoing process. I just finished reading The Gleaming of the Blade by Christian Collier again. I'm going to be teaching that book in my spring upper level poetry class class. And so I'm really excited about that. Christian's a fabulous poet, if you've never encountered his work. And he sort of had a really good splash with this book and very well-deserved. He's a really exciting and engaging fellow to talk with. So I've been rereading his book. Also, for some context for The Vine Temple and also for my upcoming class, I'm reading Next Door to the Dead by Driscoll as well. So that's kind of like the two poetry collections I'm sitting with. I'm teaching a course in the Japanese novel, Post-World War II, and so I'm reading uh, Kobo Abe's Woman in the Dunes right now as part of that. I always reread all the books I teach along with the classes. It's more fun that way. And honestly, like it's amazing how much new stuff you keep discovering and really in, in well-constructed works. I just read The Silent Cry by Kenzabura Owe. Next week, we start talking about Hard-boiled Wonderland and the End of the World by Haruki Murakami. So that's like the next thing on my pile. Um, and then actually, I gotta, I, I, I've got i got to plug a friend. I'm about to order um, the book Sympathy by Russell Helm. He's one of my colleagues here at UTC. And um, man, he's got just the most most fabulously unpredictable storytelling sensibility. His stories are wildly varied. Some of them are hilarious. Some of them have this really sharp, dark edge. He's got a really fascinating sensibility. And so, yeah, his novella, Sympathy, just came out like two days ago. It's in my Amazon cart right now. It's going to be probably the next thing I read when I'm done with the uh, the three-body problem. But yeah, I mean, some of the stuff I read, though, like honestly, and one thing Thank I do you. is uh, my creative writing courses, I kind of designed them around the books I want to be reading. Hey, so, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Andrew, is, is your novel available for pre-order at this point?
2: Not yet. Um, so it, it's going to be, or it's going to be out uh, early 2023. Uh, review copies are going out right now okay. to folk for things like blurbs and some pre-release reviews. Um but uh, yeah, it's, it's a little ways out. Uh, we're still in the editing process for it.
0: Okay, well, we wanted to be sure that you had something to plug, like people could go and, and obviously you have all these wonderful things online, but is there something they can buy <laughs> that would profit you well, <laughs> as certainly.
2: well? I mean, uh, you know, uh, the goats have taken over the barracks. Is actually, I mean, it's still only a year and a half old. I'm actually really proud of that book. Um, it was a long time in the making, and um, it still has some of my favorite things that I've that I've written in it. One thing that was very frustrating about the release of that book was that it did come out in March 2021. Um, you know, it, it was actually accepted in November 2019, and so it had a pretty lengthy process turning it around for um, for publication. And so, yeah, I mean, basically I had a lot of plans for marketing the book and they all went straight to hell. Been um, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I, I managed to pull together a couple of really fabulous virtual readings. My launch party was with... Um, the poets Jeff Harden and Jesse Graves and that was a wonderful event actually and we had a great crowd for it and it was a really varied crowd I mean you know one thing that's cool about virtual events is the way they can pull people from very different places that normally would never be in the same space Um, so yeah we had you know we had folk in Canada there we had uh, some of my um, old uh, some folk I used to know from uh-huh. New England were there some people on the west coast were in that reading then I had another one with uh, Marilyn Callett and Christian Collier um, that was uh, the month later And then I read with Katie Yoakum down the road as well. There were great events. I don't, I'm not going to like bash them at all, but they weren't the same kind of marketing push that I really had planned for the book. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I actually am still kind of semi-actively marketing it because again, I'm happy with it. I think it's a good piece in terms of getting people connected to my work. It's definitely one of the ways uh, I'd love to do it.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Where can we find you at? Do you have a website that's that's you all about you? So Um, there's a couple of different places.
2: I am fairly active on some social media. You can find me on Facebook really easily. You can either find my personal page or Andrew Nyberg author. I also have an active Twitter account too, www.andrewnyberg.com. You know, N-A-J-B-E-R-G. I'm putting up some new material about the the forthcoming novel and then some information about some of my upcoming projects as well. So hopefully, so that should be up and running here uh, just after the weekend.
1: We appreciate your time because this has just been, it's, it's inspiring to us. And we're just, you know, we're hosting the thing, you know, that's when you just open up and speak, it's like a, uh, just a rapid fire font of, of ideas and thoughts that, that I don't know about the people listening, but I'm walking away from it with ideas. And now I'm going to go back into some science fiction because (laughs) I've been reading some, but obviously but my goodness. Thank you, oh, Andrew. Oh, again, yes. we
0: appreciate this so very much. Thank you for spending time with us. No problem at all. Thank you yeah. so much
1: for having me. I hope you all have a wonderful night. You oh, we shall. Too. And we <laughs> want to thank everybody for listening and remember to keep writing, writing all, all the things. things.
0: <laughs>